Welcome to the Shiloh Podcast. In this episode, we're once again bringing you a recording of a webinar designed to engage audiences in a major research project, Abuse in Religious Contexts. This project is the first of its kind internationally to undertake an integrated study of institutional, policy, professional and individual dimensions of abuse across a range of religious traditions. It aims to break new ground in the attention it pays to the processes of repair, restitution and recovery, and it prioritises the experiences of survivors in its investigations. It will be sharing its findings early next year. Ahead of that, these webinars will introduce you to some of the different streams within the project. This is the third webinar, and I think many of us are finding that they're providing spaces of support and community, as well as of information sharing. The topic of this episode is reporting, secrecy and silencing in cases of abuse in religious contexts. Thank you for listening. Let me introduce you to uh, Richard Scorer, who is a Principal Lawyer and Head of Abuse at the Law Team Slater and Gordon. Yasmin Raymond, who is CEO of Juno Women's Aid based in Nottingham and a human rights activist. And Yehudis Fletcher, scholar, activist and an expert by experience. I'm going to start by talking to Richard a little bit and sort of laying out the current position with regard to mandatory reporting in this country. Um, The Independent Inquiry into Child Sex Abuse, ICSA, recommended the introduction of mandatory reporting. So Richard, um, first of all, tell me what's the position with mandatory reporting at the moment and tell me what it would mean if it were introduced. So on, on the issue of mandatory reporting, um, we, we don't have mandatory reporting in, in this in this country, in England and Wales or, or Scotland for that matter. Um, we're unusual as a, as, a, as a Western country and as, as a European country in not having some form of mandatory reporting. Most, most countries do. And as you've said, ICSA has recommended that that change. Uh, what they've recommended is a model of mandatory reporting that would apply essentially to regulated activities, in other words, organised activities, um, where children are being looked after, which would obviously include uh, religious settings. Um, and what they're recommending is that the the, uh, the the mandatory reporting law would require the reporting of um, either direct knowledge of abuse in the form of a of a disclosure from a victim or or a disclosure from a perpetrator, although that's obviously rare, or of course um, directly witnessing the abuse, and that's rare also. So it requires reporting of direct knowledge of abuse. It would also require um, the reporting of um, reasonable suspicion of abuse. ICSA don't use quite that term, but that's essentially what they're referring to. So it would require reporting of both of those things, knowledge and reasonable suspicion. Uh, But we'll probably come on to this. I I think the law is deficient, particularly around the reporting of reasonable suspicion. And so uh, there would be penalties attached to the failure to report by designated safeguarding officers in, in different institutions, including religious ones? Yes. And in, in fact, I think the law, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a bit unclear in the ICSA report, but I think the law may require people to report directly to the, to the local authority um, designated officer rather than through their organisation. There are different views about how you would, you would make that work in practice. Um, there, in, in the model that ICSA proposed, there would be a criminal penalty for failing to report direct knowledge of abuse, as I say, in the form of a disclosure by the victim, um, uh, directly witnessing it, or, or, or a disclosure by the perpetrator. There would not be a criminal penalty for failure to report um, reasonable suspicion of abuse. And I think that's a defect in, in their proposal. I think that's wrong. I think there should be a criminal penalty for that. And I emphasise in talking about this that, that the purpose here is not to put people in jail. The purpose of a mandatory reporting law is not to send people to prison. It is to embed a culture of reporting. But the reality is, and this was very clear from the uh, case studies that we saw in ICSA, the vast majority of situations where institutions or settings are dealing with abuse and, it, and it's coming to their knowledge are situations where they suspect that something is happening or people within the institution suspect that something is happening. Direct knowledge is much rarer. And so I think in order to make mandatory reporting effective, you need to embed the idea within the organisation that reasonable suspicions have to be reported. I think that's crucial to the effectiveness of mandatory reporting. I think the law is deficient in that regard. Um, Can I just clarify, this this is a recommendation from ICSA, so um, that this would apply to... um 
knowledge of abuse of minors. Where do adults come into this? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. It was a child abuse inquiry, so its terms of reference were limited to children, and that's the law that it's, it's proposed. I think that um, mandatory reporting needs also to apply to, to adults, particularly vulnerable adults, but actually adults generally. And it's, it's important, I think, particularly in the context of religious organisations, because religious organisations inevitably attract, and indeed they often seek to attract, um, and, and provide support to people who, to adults who are vulnerable in various ways. I'm not simply talking about people who are vulnerable because in the legal sense, because they lack capacity, but people who just are, are generally vulnerable. And many of those will be drawn into religious settings. And so it is important that um, mandatory reporting in a religious context applies to those people. I think that's particularly important. This is um, a ridiculously large question, so please um, do edit your reply <laughs> appropriately. But could you give um, a sort of an overview of how you see um, the status or the, the state of current safeguarding procedures among the main sort of religious traditions in this country? Um, that's a really big question, and in a sense, I mean, all of the you know, 50, all of the many ICSA reports um, on religious settings um, try to address that that very complicated question. Clearly, some are more advanced than others. I've been very critical of the state of safeguarding in the Catholic Church and the Church of England, and there are there are clearly still issues there, significant issues. You take the Church of England, for example. We've had over the last few days the revelations about uh, uh, the confirmation. Uh, uh, that the, the allegations against um, in relation to soul survivor were, were substantiated. And, and that abuse has clearly been going on over many decades. And despite ICSA, despite the various um, changes in Church of England safeguarding, um, that wasn't picked up by the system. It was, you know, it, it came to light because of, of victims and survivors very courageously coming forward, but it wasn't picked up within the Church of England's internal safeguarding systems, even though it seems to have been widely known about. So. There are clearly significant problems. It's probably fair to say when one's looking across, you know, the, the range of religious organisations that there are differences, that there are significant differences, however. And you wouldn't get Justin Welby, for example, trying to argue that, you know, there is no, no child abuse or no, no abuse of any kind in the Church of England. He would, he would accept that there is. There were um, people from, you know, from leadership positions in minority religions who came before ICSA and lodged statements arguing that because their settings were based around concepts of, of, of chastity and purity and, and, and gender segregation, that there, there therefore could not be any abuse and it wouldn't simply be, it was something that simply wasn't happening. So there's a difference of attitude there. It's also fair to say that the Catholic Church and the Church of England have become more willing over time and probably with external pressure to embrace secular safeguarding expertise. I think they need to go a lot further in that. And I think there are still issues there, but they're willing in principle to do it. And if you take the average diocesan safeguarding committee or safeguarding commission in the Catholic Church or the Church of England, they will have secular expertise within that in the form of, you know, police officers or, or social workers or people who have, who bring that secular safeguarding understanding. You won't get that by contrast in, in you know, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who obviously have a view that the external world is, um, you know, is, is, is largely evil and, and needs to be repudiated. So, there are significant differences across the spectrum in terms of responses to this. And I guess there's also just questions about um, economics and resources and capacity. Mm. Um, so the Church and the Catholic Church have, have, have got resources to sort of set up their safeguarding procedures in a way that a, a small religious organisation may not have. Um, mm. Are there any, do you think, significant arguments against mandatory reporting? Yeah, I mean, the, the argument that, that's always made is that is that you get more reports and that, that has the danger of overwhelming the system. I mean, the, 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 the reality is that if you bring in mandatory reporting, and we've seen this in, in many other countries, you will get more reports. I mean, that's the whole point of it. If you, if you didn't get more reports, there wouldn't be any point in, in doing it. Um, and it is true to say that if you're going to have mandatory reporting, you've got to have a number of things alongside it. And I'm sure Yasmin and Yehudis will come to this. But... Um, we need mandatory reporting, I will always argue for it, but we currently have a criminal justice system in this country which is barely functioning. I mean, I have clients who are waiting, you know, five, six, seven years for a, for a case to go to court, and that's that's not a functioning or, or acceptable system, 
and then if you if you bring more reports into that system you're going to have a problem so this the system as a whole needs more resources anyway and it needs more resources to cope with the impact of mandatory reporting as and when we get it and can you just um tell us uh, briefly again about the the, the big um impediment for some Christian organisations in um, introducing mandatory reporting, which is the seal of the confessional. Um, this is the Catholic Church and sections of the Anglican Church too. What, what's their problem? Well, what they, what they say is that, you know, they have a religious doctrine that certain certain things that are shared with clergy in particular contexts, the seal of the confessional in the Catholic Church, for example, as a matter of religious doctrine, must remain secret and should not be reported. And their argument is that that should override mandatory reporting. Um, when we talk about this issue, it's always or very often talked about in terms of the seal of the confessional in the Catholic Church. In fact, many religions have a, a sort of concept of confessional confidentiality. And I don't accept that that should um, entitle them to, to override mandatory reporting. If you go down that route of saying that the, you know, the rules of the religion um, entitle certain things to be kept secret, then you if effectively what you do is you give the religion a veto over what is reported or not reported, and that undermines the the, the whole purpose of mandatory reporting, which is to make sure that everything is reported. But the Vatican's very clear, it's not going to change its doctrine. The Anglicans in this country that are grouped within them, uh, the Forward and Faith movement, mm. sort of say, well, we're not happy with the idea that um, mandatory reporting overrides the, the confessional. So um, that's a sort of big issue there to, to be dealt with. But I mean, I, I believe that in some um, Anglican churches, they've actually revised the doctrine so that mandatory reporting does take precedence. Yes, and, and this has happened in Australia. Um, the, the Anglican Church in Australia passed an amending canon, uh, creating circumstances in which a priest can, um, or a minister can, um, can break the seal of the confessional to report uh, child abuse effectively, child, or, or sexual offending. And I think that's right. Um, and, and what that demonstrates is that, you know, religious doctrine on this has the capacity to change. I mean, religious doctrine is not as fixed as religions sometimes um, say that it is. But I think that's a progressive move in the Anglican Church in Australia, and it ought to be emulated elsewhere. Uh, <clears throat> Ix has recommended mandatory reporting. Is it likely to be introduced anytime soon? Well, I mean, the, the Home Secretary, if, if you believe the Home Secretary is sort of I think said something to the effect that she had a personal commitment to bringing this in. Obviously, we only have one, you know, at best a year to run of the current government, and it, and it may be that it will get lost amidst all the other things that are going on. I think if we get a change of government, if we have a Labour government, there is a strong likelihood that they will bring it in. Uh, Keir Starmer has been personally committed to it since I think 2014, when when he, he did his victims law project. Um, that I was involved in, and there was a clear commitment in that to mandatory reporting, and that's been Labour policy ever since. So I would hope that they would um, bring it in, but obviously, as as we've said, it's got to be got to be accompanied not just by increased resources, but also, and I'm sure Yasmin and Yehudis will will get onto this. I think changes in the practice of policing because the the approach of policing and police forces to abuse, particularly in minority religious settings, has, has, has often not been good enough and not, not uh, victim and survivor focused enough. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Richard. Um, Yehudis, do you have any reservations about the introduction of mandatory reporting? I, I don't have reservations as such. Um, there's obviously going to be difficulties that need to be ironed out that Richard's outlined and I know Yasmin will tell us more about. Mandatory reporting has to come in. We need it in order to keep children in this country safe. And that's before we even get on to safeguarding vulnerable adults. We've got a, a system that is just stacked against victims from every side. We've got, particularly in religious communities, there are doctrines restricting whose voice is heard, whose voice, once it's even heard, is given any validation or prominence. We've got funny conceptions of <clears> sin that kind of downgrade sexual offending to the same thing as like mixing milk and meat or driving a car on the Sabbath. So there's a real lack, particularly in my experience in the Jewish community, of the understanding of the, the gravitas around this subject. Um, so that's, that's one element, again, that's, that's stacked against victims. And then even those who, who do report their, you know, what's happened to them, like Richard was saying, you can end up six, seven years waiting for your case to be heard. And in that time, you endure things like 
the digital strip search, which is now meant to have stopped, but isn't necessarily stopped across the board. And that means that when a victim goes to the police station to report what's happened to them, they think that they're going to, you know, tell someone what's happened. And then that's something that's going to be done about what's happened to them. When in reality, what happens is you go into a room, you tell someone what's happened, and then they say, can I have your phone? Can I have the login to all your social media accounts? And it becomes a sort of, literally, it's called a digital strip search because that's what happens to victims. You're, you're completely exposed. And I, I know lots of people who have gone in fully intending to cooperate with the police investigation, but it's just too much as it, as it goes on and, and they'll end up pulling out. And then that part of the system works to then reinforce, in my case, religious authorities who are saying, you know, the police and, and um, state authorities are not the way to solve this problem because it's, you know, it, it hasn't been a, an experience that met, that met the need that you approached them with. Mm. Um, Yasmin, do you want to pick up on this? I mean, you've got a few concerns about the the implications of mandatory reporting, what it would mean for survivors and victims. I think in principle, absolutely. I agree with what Richard and Eudis have said. If, you know, we've all got an obligation to protect children um, and um, you know survivors within our communities. But I think Richard's already said about how broken the criminal justice system is. And I think the devil's in the detail about what happens with this. Um, because if it's not about putting, you know, abusers in prison, then what is it about? What What's the objective? Is it just to, you know, to get the report so that we've got an idea of the scale of the problem? But for me, it, there is um, what Judas was saying about it must have a victim-centred approach. Whatever we do absolutely must be centred on what happens next and how, how is um, the victim protected and all of that. The other thing is the person reporting, what protections are there for them? Because I think that within some communities, there will be huge consequences. And I think we've got to make the links between child sex abuse and other forms of violence and abuse, particularly um, you know, notions of honour and shame within um, South Asian communities, and the very, very real consequences of, of particularly women who stand up and speak out. They will either end up forced into a marriage, taken overseas, and, and in worst case scenarios, they could end up dead. I mean, at the moment, the, the proposal for mandatory reporting is those who are sort of, you know, designated within their organisations with some sort of responsibility for reporting that it sort of applies to them. Would those people face the the risks that you're talking about there? Absolutely. We have um, men and women from minoritised backgrounds working in every section of society. So they will be the social workers, they will be the teachers, they will be the police officers, those lists of people who are the mandated persons and under the proposals. Um, and they will run real risks um, should they make a report from within their own communities. But also let's not forget that some of the perpetrators will also be in those positions. So, um, you know, the Ulla case from Tower Hamlets back in, um, I think it was 2003, where um, Sadab Ullah, um, you know, um, murdered his, his, um, his young baby child because he felt that she was possessed. He was an educational development officer within the local authority. You know, so, so let's not forget that, that perpetrators could have access to the information. So we've got to, I think, be, be very careful and really, really think about the detail of this. The other thing is what constitutes a religious setting? You know, you've talked about the Catholic Church and the Church of England, that you know, you've got hierarchical structures, you've got very clear religious settings. You don't have that within some minoritized religions. Um, in Islam, for example, some of the survivors who, who I've spoken to had religious teachers coming to their homes, you know, and the abuse then took place in their homes. How do you regulate in settings like that? So I think, you know, I would su support it coming in, but with the caveat that we just take our time to work out some of the nuances and some of the detail. Um, Yehudis, I think you might have something to say about um, shiny safeguarding uh, policies that, that don't actually quite cut the mustard uh, when it comes down to it. But I mean, they're, they're there for a start. In, in, the, in the sort of main denominations or, you know, umbrella groupings um, within Christianity, Judaism, Islam, that, you know, those policies are there. Um, in in most cases, yes, they probably are there. Although um, when uh, the Union of Orthodox Hebrew Congregations gave their evidence to ICSA, they said um, that they didn't actually have a safeguarding policy, and they are the umbrella group that serves 
um, the fastest growing part of the Jewish community in London. But yeah, I don't like shiny safeguarding policies because they provide, it's not that we don't need them, obviously they're, they are the, the bare minimum starting point, but they provide an opportunity for disguised compliance. So what that means is, if somebody comes into an organization, let's say ICSA, and says, um, hello, Rabbi so-and-so, what do you do to safeguard children? That rabbi is able to produce a safeguarding policy that has a procedure set out. Um, and then they might ask the question, well, how many reports have you had? And they'll say, no, we've not actually had any reports. How wonderful and shiny is our organization that has never had an incident of child abuse? And you, have, you end up as this kind of black hole of data um, where, for me, that's such a red flag. If you've got no reports of child abuse, or you have one in 20 years that you can refer to, then you're, you're not listening to people who are, who are, you know, people in your organization are not reporting what they're seeing. You're not listening to parishioners. Um, you're not paying attention to what's hurting them. I guess, um, Richard, maybe just a word about the law affecting charities, because it uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, if you've got charitable status, you have some sort of obligation, don't you, to have um, have safeguarding policies? Is that right? So, I, I, I'm I think just thinking right. about whether the, some smaller religious organisations wouldn't have charitable status, and therefore there wouldn't be that particular safeguard. Well, absolutely, and I mean, with with many, um, particularly minority religions, we you know we, we don't even know. Um, half the time where they are and where they're operating and exactly what they're doing. We, we, with the Church of England and the Catholic Church, we know where they are and, and roughly what they're doing. But, um, you know, to, to even start regulating this space, you would need a big exercise in actually mapping what is out there. And unfortunately, ICSA didn't even sort of start to get to grips with that particular challenge. When it comes to the Charities Commission, I mean, yes, they do talk about safeguarding and they have occasionally intervened, for example, in the in, in particular Jehovah's Witnesses groups because of inadequate safeguarding, but they are not an effective regulator in this space. And, and they themselves, when they gave evidence to ICSA, were very clear that they didn't have the, the resource or the expertise to do regulation properly in, in this space. Um, and um, you know, they are one of a number of potential, potential regulators in this area, but they can't do it. And there isn't really anything else that can do it very well at the moment. Yehudis has already sort of alluded to this, um, but I'm just interested in a, a brief exploration, Yasmin, um, perhaps of the the sort of religious beliefs and, and laws which are used to silence women in particular. I mean, I, I guess, you know, in, in Christianity, um, the, the, um, the sort of so-called so purity culture is, is pretty effective at sort of um, closing women down from, from having their voices heard. Um, I just wonder within the communities that you work in, what are the religious um, beliefs which are used to shut people up? Um, virginity is absolutely prized, absolutely prized, and that there is, um, you know, a silencing. And, um, you know, that we can see from Muslim countries across the world, and, you know, as a practicing Muslim, I, you know, I'm very critical of um, the, the way things are, are implemented and written, I guess. Um, in that if, if um, a woman reports rape, you know, or a child reports that they have been raped, they are often, um, you know, then sub, you know, facing the Hadood ordinances, say, for example, in Pakistan, where they're then accused of adultery. There is the issue around um, a woman's testimony and Islam. And, there's, you know, there are differing schools of Islamic jurisprudence. So some will say, you know, a woman's testimony is worth half of a man without corroborating evidence or the support of male testimony. You can't believe her. Um, to others who say, actually, we will accept the testimony of a woman. But I think we've also got to look at women more generally in society. Just look at the Daily Mail headlines about rape victims in our society, about women do not tell the truth. And, and you know, that's something as a feminist and part of the feminist movement we've been fighting for years. And look at the rape convictions. So I think, um, you know, the 3%, I think it is currently. So put both the religious interpretations and more wider societal messages together. And like Yehuda said, everything is stacked against the victim. Mm. Um, Yehuda, do you want to add anything to about sort of, you know, interpretations of Jewish law, which um, which mean that that women aren't heard? Yeah, so I, um, I was 25 before I realised I was a legal person. Um, you just, as a woman in a Jewish court, you are not, you're just not considered to be um, a legal person at all. So it's not that if if you go in and you tell someone what's happened, it's not that you're not believed as a human, 
um, there's a, you know there's an ordinary connection where there's an there's an acceptance that something's happened to you, but the willingness to act on that is not supported in in um, the orthodox interpretation of Jewish law. A woman can't give evidence, and there's a there's a differentiation that's made in in Jewish law between a person a, a woman who can give testimony and a woman who is believed and, and I think it's important to stress that it's not that that she's not being believed but um, I've spoken to men acting rabbinical positions who are very torn by this because they feel bound by Jewish law and uh, and and at the same time accept that something has happened to to a woman or a child who they, they can't help um, and that's that's kind of one one restriction I think that's part of what we're dealing with but like Yasmin said we're also dealing with really sort of societal values if women are expected to play a particular role in in the family or in a community setting and they act out of that role by speaking up then that brings all sorts of connotations about what sort of woman she is which is not hugely different from what you'd experience in in a British courtroom when you you know the, the average person who experienced sexual violence is, you know, faces what they call sluts or nuts. She's either she, she's either put herself out there or she's crazy and it didn't really happen. Thank you. Um, I'm going to add one very quick point, Rosie, that I think is really important. The British state has legitimated plural legal systems um, and created these Sharia courts, um, not created them, but legitimised them. They are run by men. Even where there is a woman present, they are run by men. And you are then facing a panel of men. And I, I suspect it's it's the same situation that, that the Judas has described in the Jewish in um in the Jewish community. That's deeply, deeply dangerous. Deeply dangerous. But legal aid cuts and also this pandering to um religious organizations, particularly in relation to counterterrorism, has legitimated these courts and they are where minoritized women and Muslim women are being directed. And that's not going to help us. That's really helpful. And it, it was, it was um, ju I was just going to say, actually, um, one of the issues or one of the culture war things that's going on in our society at the moment is this sort of clash between religious rights and secular rights. And the, the voices of some religious groups saying, you know, I'm being cancelled, I'm not allowed to do this. And I, I wonder, Richard, whether you have got any sort of comment on that clash between religious and secular law and how that's playing out in some of these conversations? Well, I mean, my, my view, which um, I'm sure Yasmin and Yehudis would share, is very much a sort of one law for all all um, view. Uh, you know, we, we, we should have one common legal system which applies to everybody. Uh, we shouldn't treat religion differently. We shouldn't have religious get-outs and religious exceptions. Uh, we have a level, level playing field where religious organisations are treated in, in the same way as everybody else. Um, and, you know, in saying that, I, I accept, obviously, that religious freedom is important, but it can never be a trump card when it comes to abuse. That's my, my very firm view. Thank you. Well, look, I'd like to throw this open now to anyone who wants to contribute and just put your hand up. Um, and if I call you, then just tell us um, who you are. And if you represent an organisation, just say something uh, about that. Um, so, Suki Kaur, um, you are from Seek Women's Aid and welcome back. Thank you so much. And Richard, Yasmin, Yehudis, every part of everything that you were saying, I was like, yes, 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 because absolutely, I mean, we're from the Sikh community, so this is a non-Abrahamic faith, and we have been trying to do some mapping over the last two years with an organisation called Gurdwara Aid, and at the point where we had done the first draft of mapping, we were able to establish that 85% of temples do not even know what a safeguarding policy is let alone if one was to be put into place and what, what will be done. So Seek Women's Aid, we actually provide um, victim support and advocacy to victims of spiritual abuse. So it is part of our offer as a service. And for the last 10 years, I am not from the sector. I came from the community and I'm someone who has just, because I really, really care about my faith and I do consider myself a woman of God. I, I read, I researched and when I was seeing some of the practices that were being carried out in the name of the Sikh faith, this has nothing to do with the Sikh faith whatsoever. But like what was mentioned by previous speakers, that this is a male dominated. And what we're seeing is the pattern of these are just some men 
who first started temples and you know religious institutions in their homes and now we are seeing wide-scale fraud we are seeing wide-scale sexual abuse we've probably got about seven case files right now there is not a particular area that is free of it I and mean, in short we're in a mess Suki, is there anyone is there anyone doing work with at the at the other end from you as it were with the saying you know yeah, so here's this is, yeah Godwara Aid has been attempting to do that work and they are getting very little engagement because I mean they're, they're making that very first step but what I think the point I'm trying to make here is that communities like ours as a minoritized community we are in the very infancy of just understanding safe recruitment practices what what safeguarding means and for me it's like to be a a person of god let, let, let let's take all the nonsense and put it to one side how are we acting in the name of god and perpetuating harm the two things it's an oxymoron they cannot be together but if mandatory reporting was introduced would would the good be able to res respond just like that because if they've, if they've not got those policies in place um, they don't necessarily have the people there who who are responsible for reporting. Yeah, well, what I would argue there is that there has to be a will from the organisation and where there is a will, there is organisations like Gurdwara Aids out there. We have had three seat councils running for the last 15 years. I was on the seat council and I was trying to chair the community safety committee and over 15 years they would appoint an illiterate man to the chair of that community so work deliberately could not be done. Now I do want to say there is some fantastic work being done around safeguarding this Croydon Godwara, there's several Godwaras across London and the Midlands who are doing amazing in safeguarding but they are in the minority, not the majority. And what mandatory reporting will bring, it, it, it's almost like saying, right, we're going above you now. And it was like we had a problem with food hygiene because we have the Langer kitchen, which is the free community kitchen. And it wasn't until the standard, like, you know, the five-star standards came in that Godwaras understood what um, keeping clean kitchens were. So that really helped bring about a really clean and health and safe and hygiene. So I just think it will force where there is no will to then have to act. Thank you. Thanks ever so much, Shuki. Um, we've got a hand up from Nick. Hi there. My name's uh, Nick Donaldson. Um, I uh, used to work with, for the Charity Commission with religious uh, organisations and I'm now a consultant um, working with uh, religious organisations, including on kind of safeguarding governance. Um, question for Richard um, would be around the, uh, the, the mandatory reporting requirement. Um, Given that it applies to people, or is proposed to apply to people in regulated activity, just on, well, actually, just a quick comment on regulated activity. That in a lot of minority religious groups, people would have no idea whether they were in religious, or for that matter, perhaps in some more mainstream groups, would have no idea whether they're in regulated activity. It's a very complicated thing. But given that it applies to people in regulated activity um, and pe uh, people in positions of trust in a religious organisation context. Um, What's to stop, say, an organisation that um, has a confessional process from just appointing somebody to listen to be part of the confession who's not in regulated activity um, and not in a position of trust, who can then listen to the confession and and, and not pass it on to anybody if they're, they're not concerned? Um, well, you, you raise a really um, important point, and, and I think that the... Um, I personally would have would have wanted ICSA to sort of go in, in, in developing its policy response to this and its recommendations. I would have wanted ICSA to do to do more more detailed work than it did. And um, particularly around, for example, the definition of regulated activities, it's something that's touched on in the report, but it, there are some real points of detail around that that ICSA needed to grapple with within their recommendations. And I'm not sure they they really they really did that. And I think as a general, you know, there were, there were many positive things about the ICSA process, but one of the one of the disappointments with it was that there wasn't more robust stress testing and evidence around the policy measures that you know would need to be employed you know um bringing in some of the points for example that, that yasmin and yehudas have made today so i think um as a general point um the extra recommendations are a bit you know a bit lacking in that in that respect your point about the confessional i think is a is a is a perfectly fair one and it's a it's a it's a concern that i share that that and and when we when we do the um, project book in due course and, and in my contribution to that I'll try to develop some of these arguments looking at examples from 
other countries around the world, but it, it does seem to me that having a confessional exception sets up a situation where where the religion or the religious organization can then effect, have an effective veto over what is reported or not reported. And I think that's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. I, just So just really quickly, sorry, I, I think that even if there's not a confessional exception, there is practically an exception if you limit it to regulated activity and people in positions of trust, because many, many uh, religious, uh, many uh, ministers <coughs> are not in those positions. Sorry. Well, and that's why the definition of regulated activities is so important and it has to be and and, and that issue has to be addressed in the context of ensuring that it does apply properly in religious settings. I mean, generally speaking, I'm not particularly in favour of mandatory reporting laws that apply to the population as the general population as a whole. I don't think they tend to work on the evidence. So you are going to have to limit it to particular types of activities. And the question then is, what does the definition cover and does the definition of regulated activities, as you pointed out, uh, capture what you need to capture and as I said I don't, I don't think it's a really address that as in the level of detail that was required. Thank you. Survivors <coughs> Voices, Little Roe. Hello Rosie, uh, thank Hi. you everybody. Yeah, Jane Chavu from Survivors Voices, survivor-led organisation and also one of the survivor representatives on the Church of England National Safeguarding Panel. Um, uh, thank you so much, this is such an important discussion. Um, a couple of, of, of points to move us on a bit. Um, so I think uh, really important what Yasmin was saying about mandatory reporting needs to be survivor centred. There's a lot. There's a lot of issues in the detail. One of the concerns that some survivors expressed to me is is wanting to be able to disclose without it rushing into statutory investigation. And I think the details around what do we mean by survivor centred, leaving some agency with survivors is is important it's not that we don't want to be protected but we do want to have some agency in what happens when we first disclose um and then i think it's like in terms of what happens one of the gaping holes that we have is spiritual abuse is not illegal and and i think actually unless we make spiritual abuse illegal um, we're never really going to be able to serve survivors of, of spiritual abuse and that includes raising the age of of the abuse of trust so that it's illegal for adults in, in positions of trust um, to have, have relationships with adults, not just with, you know, under under 18s. And I'd be interested can in I, the panel's views on that. Jane, can you just say something about when you say that somebody reporting might just, they want to have some sort of control over how that's reported and so on. Um, have you any idea about what that might look like? Um, <clears throat> if somebody that reports abuse and my responsibility is to report abuse, um, yes, I am going to want to sort of rush straight to the statutory authorities aren't I so I mean what what might that agency look like I think it's really difficult isn't it to to create guidelines that 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 enable something to be person-centered but when I worked in children's rights um we provided advocacy for children in care and locked up and looked after in the the 10 years that I was involved in that scene we we only had to breach confidentiality once and that was because we waited until the young person was ready to report themselves so that unless it was, in, you know, absolutely extreme danger, that, that was obvious. So there were times when you could wait a week, two weeks, a month before going through to statutory reporting and walk that journey with with the, with the, the victim survivor. Now, I, I know there's arguments against that, but I think that's an important debate to have. How much agency can we leave with the survivor? And one of the, the arguments which you can't ignore around the confessional and, and and don't get me wrong I completely agree that that religious law cannot trump state law but is that it doesn't allow victims to make a confession about their abuse in a safe space without being rushed into unpleasant procedures Yasmin do you have um and do you have something to add to that um I absolutely agree I think we have to um recognize that the victims have agency and give them that space but I think there is a distinction to be made between children and, and adults um, who were victims. The criminal justice system fails, fails far too many of us. Trust and confidence is at, I think, an all-time low with policing. So I think we, you know, that's part of the equation. But I think giving making sure that the victim's voice is included, including the child's. We currently in domestic abuse have a process called the MARAC, the Multi-Agency Risk Assessment Conference. It is the only case conferencing where the victim of the abuse is excluded from the the case conference so their voice is not there an advocate is there to represent them but they are not there themselves and I think if we're going to go down mandatory reporting having the voice of the victim there is absolutely critical because 
they've been navigating, they've been surviving the abuse, they know what may or may not work, but also uh, we've got to build up trust. They're not going to tell us everything at the outset. So let's work with them, build up trust, and that will help us get the evidence that we need should we then go down the criminal route. Yehudis? Yeah, I think there's a huge difference between um, reporting something that's happened and the victim themselves giving a statement. Um, and and I think carefully separating those two might be a way forward. So it's for me, it's the question about who's holding the risk. And it's not always, it's sometimes it's appropriate for somebody working with a young person who makes comments that sort of raise red flags to work with them and build trust so there's a, a bit more clarity around what's going on. But sort of red flagging what's going on with statutory authorities does not need to be, well, now this child or, or vulnerable adult needs to sit there and, and tell someone their whole life story. I think there's, there's we should appreciate that actually in, in reality, it never happens straight away anyway. And all we're saying is that the process should, should be starting earlier so that children um, are kept safer sooner. Thank you. Um, Sadesh Paul, um, I hope I've pronounced your name right. Forgive me if I haven't. You wanted to come in. Yes, thank you. Shadish Paul from Seek Women's Aid. Yeah, I work very closely with Suki, so I won't repeat what Suki said. But I mean, if it was up to me, I'd be um, setting up some, some some sort of governance structure like Ofsted or um, CQC or something for places of worship. That would be the ideal situation for me, because then they'd be reviewed, they'd be monitored, you know, and, and if they weren't meeting certain standards, they'd be closed down or at least given time to improve. That's the ideal, but I know we're, I don't know if we'll ever reach there, but I know we're a long way off from that. And I, I'm glad, obviously, with the mandatory reporting, but I know that we've seen Gordwaras who um, have said that, oh, in the last 10 years, they've had one person reporting any form of abuse. So I think this is also about empowering the community. We, we need to make sure communities are educated and they understand that this mandatory reporting process has come into place. Because last year we dealt with um, a situation where a young girl had um, been reportedly raped at a Godwara um, and nobody did anything about it until we picked up the phone and phoned the Godwara and said, have you reported this to the police? So they're very good, these religious places of worship are hiding stuff um, and they use power and pressure on people to keep them silent. So it's important to, um, to empower the community and that's where we are at the moment with one situation situation where um, a Gordor has done something that we believe is wrong we have empowered the community and we're working with them to challenge the the the, the um, committee and so on I won't go into detail but that's what we need we need people to know about it and there needs to be some way I don't know whether that's funding maybe through the local authorities but messages need to be need to go out to talk about this mandatory reporting so because on on the ground as a community we hear information that nobody else knows about Nobody, no police won't know about this. Nobody else is going to know about this. So how will we know whether um, places of worship are actually following through on this mandatory re reporting if nobody talks about what's happening? D does that make sense? Yeah, so that's yeah. why I think we need to definitely raise awareness. It needs community engagement, community awareness, so that um, they will then hold their places of worship to account if nobody else knows about it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Oliver Urquhart Irvine. Thank you. Here in the, my own account, really, um, as a, a experientially, who has reported things through the criminal system resulting in conviction and also through the civil law system, which capacity I'm known to Richard, uh, Richard Scorer, but not to any of the rest of you. I'm interested in something that Richard said at the beginning about uh, mandatory reporting having been introduced in other countries and whether the increased level of reporting caused by mandatory reporting had an impact on reducing instances of abuse or whether the instance of abuse is a constant factor in humanity, but the reporting is more representative of reality. And in looking at that, whether or not there is research now, because mandatory reporting has been reduced, reduced elsewhere, which demonstrates or not whether abuse is more frequent in religious contexts than in secular contexts. So that was a kind of question really about the impact, I suppose. Thank you. Whether there's any version. I had, sorry, just one other question, which was about... The scope of reporting, a lot of this is conversation seems to focus not unreasonably on current. It's sort of being aware of something happening now. I wonder whether mandatory reporting is time-bound, limited in any way, or whether it is envisaged as being capable of supporting reporting of historic cases, <coughs> whether, and whether there is any limit to that. 
Thank you. Uh, Richard, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, there are, there are a few few really interesting points there. I mean, coming to the last one first, I mean, unfortunately, I think that the 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 sort of the, the benefit in mandatory reporting for people who suffered non-recent abuse is going to be is going to be less because uh, mandatory reporting laws, as with other criminal laws, are, are not or, or cannot be, uh, you know, almost constitutionally cannot be uh, retrospective. So, um, you know, where they've been introduced, they can't require people who have had knowledge in the past and still have that knowledge to then report it under a new mandatory reporting law. It's only if there's a, there's a new report or new evidence that comes to light that the mandatory reporting obligation is triggered. So you're absolutely right that it does have um, perhaps um, less benefit um, for those who suffered uh, non-recent abuse. Um, so that, 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 that is a... a, a um, particular problem I think um, I mean in terms of the um, in, in terms of the sort of the, the other um, points that you've raised I think in, in terms of the the effectiveness of, of, of mandatory reporting there is quite a lot of research on that I'd be very happy to um, to share some with you if you're interested Ben Matthews particularly in, in, a, in who's an Australian based academic has done a lot of um, work around that the evidence is that if you if you bring in mandatory reporting, you get more, more substantiated reports of abuse. You also get more unsubstantiated reports of abuse, but there is equally also evidence that in, in, in the unsubstantiated reports of abuse, you get a lot of evidence that is then of benefit in terms of protecting children. So even if the particular report or allegation or concern isn't support, it isn't substantiated, there is nonetheless evidence that will, will, will be of benefit in protecting children so i mean that that's you know my view of what the research um shows um and i'd be very happy to share that with you if you're interested thank you um we've got john viney with his hand up oh hello there i was an, a jehovah's witness for over 50 years and have been very heavily involved in helping victims of child abuse i was an abuse victim myself so was my daughter so was my niece so was many other hundreds of people i know so i'm sort of looking at how we might get bringing in mandatory reporting as well so with three very brief points um i attend the all-party parliamentary group in, in, in Parliament, obviously, called the Safeguarding in Faiths um, Settings. I know they've been very disappointed at the lack of response of people coming along. So I'm only alerting the group that if you can attend the all-party parliamentary group Safeguarding in Faith Settings, it's Parliament that's going to have to do this anyway, if we're going to change the law. So it might be that uh, having more people there and hearing your contribution will help in that. The other thing I wanted to mention is the Charity Commission that regulates a lot of the charity situations with religions, as they have just done with Jehovah's Witnesses. They've, it's just taken nine years for the Charity Commission to get Jehovah's Witnesses to agree to formulate child protection policy. Now, that's absolutely unacceptable. Mm. They've said so in the report. Um, so I wondered if pressure can be brought to um, groups like the Charity Commission. If you withhold charity status to, to groups that are not conforming, then it hits them in the pocket. And believe me, that's one of the reasons why they jump when their pockets are hit. So I only mention that. Um, and also, um, I think I just caught Richard's scorer's point about confessionals. Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, they have their judicial meetings where there's three men, normally three, sometimes five. And we we heard confessions of, of stuff like um, child abuse assaults but are not were not and are not obligated to go to the police which is a terrible thing so they they claim to be in a situation where they're not not registered so we don't have to go to the police so i just mentioned those couple of points i don't know if if i may have gone over something that you already said but thank you for this oh it's really interesting john i mean it's it's really interesting to hear um your experience and um really really um important points we're, we're nearly out of time but i want to raise something in the chat box i, I think Yehudis is the person to um respond to this um there's a comment in the in the chat box could regulations specify that no vulnerable person ever be left alone with anyone from a purportedly religious entity other than family i mean would would that well, sort of help limit abuse 
first of all, the, the most common place for abuse to occur is within the family setting. That's that's number one. Um, and secondly, we run the risk of creating um, structures that don't actually work in don't, don't meet the needs of people in practice. What we need is a is a, a reimagined version of safeguarding that isn't about a paper that you hold or a policy that you've got filed away in the basement in the locked filing cabinet that's guarded by a cheater. Um, what we need is is an understanding, not just by the people in authority, but by the people who, um, by by the community, that safeguarding is is needs to run through as a thread in absolutely everything we do. That the priority has to shift from the idea that safeguarding is a secular requirement and then reinsert it, like Suki was saying, into um, into a, a moral value. What we need to be doing is thinking about what we want. What do we want for our children? Do we want them to be abused? Do we want them to be at risk? Or do we want them to be welcome and warm and safe? And and if, we, if what we want is the latter, then what we really need to do is to change the way that we think about safeguarding completely and I don't think it's in very like um tight regulation like that yeah so um, I mean culture change uh, bottom up is, is what's needed and uh, the mandatory reporting top down well that's great too and maybe maybe if both those things happened um we'd be creating safer environments for for children and others um I don't know Yasmin we're at just about out of time so Yasmin I don't know if you want to leave us with a final thought and Richard too um, and then it'll be time to say goodbye. Okay. My, my final thought is the option to do nothing is, is gone now. We have to do something and we've got to do right by the victims. Um, absolutely agree with everything Richard and Judas have said. Um, my final point is we also need to raise awareness about what abuse is because what one person considers abuse, another person won't. So we've got to draw boundaries. But um, the time to act is, is now and we have to do that collectively. Richard? Um, I agree with uh, the comment that, that I think ultimately a state regulator is the only answer to this. Unfortunately, um, this issue at the moment is not not as high up the political agenda as it needs to be. We live in a country where you know there's trains are cattle all the time and schools are falling down, so you know other things are seen as more important. We have to keep doing what we can do to to, to keep this issue on the political agenda and as far up the political agenda as we can make it because it's really important. Right, okay. Well, look, time's up. It just remains for me to thank Richard, Yasmin and Yudis and all of you um, for joining us this morning and to Eve for facilitating and to the Abuse and Religious Context Project for giving us this opportunity to get together. There will be more and I hope to see you again. Thanks. Bye-bye.